three. Like I said, we'll try to do one a week. Some of them we'll have to divide up. So this is the third week of this. We're in Psalm 3. Makes sense for me. Um, let's read. Then we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue from there. And I'll close us in prayer tonight in Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be your blessing be on your people. So um as we talk together, me and the and the other uh and the and the younger men, one of the things that I'm I'm fond of saying, and I guess it's it's a wise saying, is I'm not we need to be careful when, when men like me, when pastors or preachers preach from their own individual pain, um, from their own individual struggles. You tend to get a sermon of an audience of one, right? Yourself. And so that is a, I've always felt like it's a clumsy way for me to preach. I mean, it will, our own struggles will infect our preaching. There's no way around it. We are human beings. But for the most part, it's very, very easy to preach every single Sunday kind of about what you're individually facing um, and not necessarily be plugged into the Holy Spirit and meeting the needs of your people. That having been said, for David's portion of the Psalms, he is almost always, it seems, writing from a very specific very personal point of view. His struggles, his victories, they're all. We see David's life of faith lived out in the Psalms. So it's therefore useful for us. It is, after all, uh, divinely inspired by God. So therefore we can depend on it. Um, I just said this. There are themes of this psalm that resonate effectively with all readers and worshipers throughout the church age. This is one of those who I think we've all walked this path. When you walk a path and you feel like you've been surrounded by enemies, when you feel like all the friends have fled, that all around you, I think we can, we can understand this. I, I've been there and I know a lot of you have. And so I think that's why we, we find such a connection with Psalm 3. We want to know what to do when we feel surrounded and at the same time, we also want... We need somebody to kind of talk us down a little bit about it. I know I need defense. At the same time, I feel that, that it can become a matter of my own personal arrogance when I am seeing just enemies. Uh, simply put, Brother Mike, sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I have opposition because I've done wrong. I've thought wrong about something. Sometimes opposition is a blessing. It's a blessing to me. So I, I don't need to just view myself in, in unilaterally as always being right. Look, without any pretense, the connection is made because all of us felt attacked and victimized by the world around us. Relentless aggression 
and arbitrary, arbitrary criticism make us feel vulnerable and frail. When people are aggressive with us, and I'm, I'm probably the worst one. I'm talking to Kyle tonight about this. And I said, this is just not revealing our conversation. But what I said was that I know how Tony is. If you catch me right after a sermon and say something critical to me, I may pop off. Right? Because I'm just kind of felt, I'm just, all of a sudden it's here. And I may say something. You give me a couple of three days, and I probably will agree with you. That's my, that's my nature. My nature is in the, in the heat of the moment, brother buddy. I'll, I can get real salty fast in the heat of the moment. You give me a few days and before long I can get real contrite. I can also really start to... I usually don't become more stubborn. I usually become less stubborn over time. I'll be really stubborn initially. I think it's just a, a natural defensiveness. Being kind of backed in a lot of corners in my life. Do you understand? I learned to kind of fight back. It's not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. I need to be gracious in the moment, Miss Kathy. And I'm not always gracious in the moment. I wish I was. If there's one thing we're going to glean from this is graciousness is a fantastic thing. There are people out there you can criticize at any moment of their lives and they always deal with it with this, this mercy and grace that's fantastic. I'm not that guy. I want to be that guy. That's where at 52 I've got to grow. Okay, But also, as I said this, arbitrary criticism is a difficult thing to deal with. When it's well-founded and, and, you, and you understand where, where they're coming from, you kind of have to swallow your pride and be a man and take it. It's when that part, it's, it's, I guess the, the, the best way illustration I can think of is someone, it's like someone walking up to you on the street and saying, that your clothes are ugly. They may be, but you don't necessarily in that context need to know about that. When they have no standing to speak into your life, it can seem like a rude intrusion to just offer criticism. It can, seem, it can feel not just unwieldy, but unneeded. Unneeded. But on the other hand, though, we, we live in a world where increasingly people feel that they can offer criticism without context virtually all the time. We live in a, a social media world where everybody just offers criticism. When we used to think about kind of what we said to people, we're now in a world where you, you're not supposed to have to think about it. Now, I think that's a world of nonsense, personally. If there's one way that, that social media has hurt our, our nation, our society, is that now there is criticism without consequence. Right? When in the past, this is, please no offense to this, in the past the potential for a punch in the nose kept a lot of people from saying what they wanted to say. Right? I might have to fight that guy. Nowadays, it never comes to that. We almost never have a fight in our school. You know why they happen? They happen on social media. They're they're virtual. They are insidious and wicked and evil, but they are virtual. In the past, I mean, if I didn't like a guy, I kind of had to swallow that mic unless I thought I could whip him. And if I couldn't whip him, shut up. Unless I want to take the beating, then I could be all bold if I want to take the beating. We live in a world now where people don't seem to be... There's no, there's no, 
There's no thought that maybe I should just keep this thought, keep this to myself. So, so that's a difficult place to be. And we're trying to look to this psalm see how we navigate it. Even though David's context is much more serious. This is the, this is the rebellion of Absalom. David's truly surrounded by enemies. He truly doesn't know who to trust. I think we have a, a frame of reference because oftentimes we're in a situation where we feel we don't know who to trust. Let's look at those themes now. And they're by stanza. They are revealed by stanza. They're the best I could um, as, I, as I studied through this. Um, so, so let's go ahead and, and see what God does with this. One, fear grips the human heart when we feel as if our foes are many and they attack our faith. Because what he says, he says, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. We are Protestant believers which means the most tender part of our life is oftentimes that life of faith. You can say my breath is bad. You can say I'm ugly or I'm short or bald-headed. Just don't question who I am in Christ. That is the, that is the attack that we just freeze up on. We don't seem to have an answer for that, that attack. And for that reason, as a people, we're not often going to make those claims about others, are we? We're very cautious about calling someone a heretic. We're very cautious about calling someone um, mistaken in that way because we know what it feels like to have somebody say, to look and say, look, I'm not sure you're saved. To us, it's almost a low blow. I'll be honest with you. We are to judge ourselves and we are to judge the church. So there, we can't avoid that part of the faith. Being critical of ourselves, Brother Roger, and of each other. As, as, as having a watch care over each other, Lucas. Where I'm watching out for my brothers and they're watching out for me. So, our personal connection to the source of strength, our Lord. Look, understand that the New Testament lucidly speaks to the issue of enemies through the person of Christ, for whom the entire lost world is an enemy. So when we talk about enemies, we always go back to Christ as our example, understanding that when we were lost, we were by definition His enemy, and by the Bible's definition, He was ours. We were an enemy of righteousness. We were an enemy of truth. We can say what we want. We can think what we want. But the Bible speaks to this issue clearly. So Jesus looks out at the world and says, essentially, I will die for my enemies. His response to a world of enemies that hate Him, attack Him, literally spit in His face is, I will die for the sins of my enemies. That's our frame of reference. We don't need to go any farther than that. When, when Christ deals with enemies, is I love my enemies. Now, He tells us to love ours. But His love for enemies is Calvary. His love for enemies is the cross. That, that's an important milestone for us. And through Paul, who understood as well as any mortal man what it means to be hated for your convictions. Literally, by the end of Paul's life, he is surrounded by enemies. He could have felt that he died alone. With no one. He could have clearly felt that. So we, we understand Paul's life. Christ Jesus established our non-circumstantial love as a standard for the redeemed life when He said in Luke 6, 27-29 and 32, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So as we look into, into Psalm 3 verses 1 and 2, the response in Christ is what? If I am surrounded by enemies, I love my enemies. I love them. I don't want to sound cliche at this time. This is not a bless her heart kind of love. Do you understand what I mean? The jokes about the South, right? Where we say bless her heart. And we don't really mean that. We really mean the opposite. Right? This is a not a bless her heart kind of love. This is a legitimate love. Christ's response to hatred was to shed His blood for their sins. He didn't shed His blood for the people who liked Him. You know why? Because nobody liked Him. He didn't shed His blood for the people who loved Him naturally because nobody loved Him naturally. He didn't shed His blood for the people that looked like Him because even the people who looked like Him, who'd known Him since birth, hated Him in their flesh. was legitimate, real love because everybody hated Him. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. Also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them. So what Christ says in light of Psalm 1, I mean Psalm 3 verses 1 and 2, is if I'm going to really be like Jesus... I have to love people who do not love me. That it's super easy, guys. Super easy to love people that love us, isn't it? Super easy to love people who are always given to us, who are always taking our side. He says, for me to be like Jesus, I've got to love those people that hate me. Now maybe you're just the sweetest, best thing in the world and nobody hates you. I know i got some people who hate me. And I'm, I'm supposed to work every single day to not just theoretically love them, Miss Diane, but in actuality love them. Wow. And doesn't really give us... There's a wiggle room here. They don't want it, or they're just being jerks today, or they, they did something terrible to you yesterday. No. Jesus simply doesn't care because... Far worse was done to him, and he responded with love. But guess what? Let me give you a little other thing here. Is that my wrath doesn't matter. So what if I hate them back? I have. It harmed them not at all, Brother Joseph. Not one little bit. In fact, probably if they knew I was hating them back, they would have laughed and laughed and laughed. Wouldn't care. If Jesus surrendered to wrath... The God, God surrenders to wrath, the response is far different. If He withdrew His restraining hand for just a second upon their lives, they would die. And He does not. He blesses them with His common grace, His unmerited favor they do not deserve anyway. Even through cursings. He never, never withdraws the hand that He has that holds everything together for their lives. Never does that. I can hate people back, doesn't matter. Why would, they, why would it ever affect them? But Jesus, what does He do? 
He loves them in every, every way He is capable. Building upon this truth, Paul wrote to Roman Christians in a world of persecution, hatred and oppression. I mean, these Roman Christians were hated in the time of Paul. And that hatred would just grow and grow for more than a hundred years. It would grow. In Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In Romans 12, 19-20, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul gives us practicality here. He says, first off, revenge belongs to who? God. You have no business in it. We have no business thinking about it. We have no business praying about it. We have no business plotting and scheming. It is all of the devil. We leave revenge. We leave punishment up to God. But He gives us a very practical, in some ways, punishment. And that is show them kindness. They're evil to you. Show kindness. Don't do it snottily. Don't do it with an edge. Don't do it, don't do it begrudgingly. Show them kindness and see what God does with kindness in their lives. Your kindness can bring conviction. Your wrath will never bring conviction. My salty tongue, my evil look never brings conviction. It's never worked. Kindness brings conviction. Because after all, the greatest blessing we can give anyone, especially our enemies, is the conviction of God. Conviction for their sins. The only fighting back that the Scriptures allow for us is uh, for us as, uh, is for men and women of God to love those who hate them, and surrender their right for retribution to the Lord who knows all hearts and judges rightly every time without mistake. That's the other problem there that I want to make sure we, we touch on before we, before we finish. And that is the fact that I, I can have a problem with somebody. I'll tell you this story really fast, really fast. I remember years and years ago when I got back into education. I probably, I've told this story. Some of you heard it before. But it's, it's been a while. I had this one kid. He was being a total jerk. I'll be honest with you. This kid was being a problem. And when we came back from lunch, he was, he was the nicest kid in the world. He was just hungry. He was just hungry. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know if that was the only meal he ate that day. Might very well have been the only time that kid was going to get to eat. Or very well probably was the big one. The well-rounded meal. Well, you know what? A younger me would have reacted. A younger me would have probably reacted poorly for the kid. Alright? Because how, how, how dare he talk to me like that? But an old me was like a little bit more patient. Rightfully so. And after lunch, I got a great kid. See, I didn't know that. God did. God knows that kind of thing. I, I think I understand people. I do not understand people. I don't know what happened in their life. I don't know what happened in their past. I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know what, what one little comment or one little interaction brings about in them. I don't know any of those things. God knows it all. I can't act. I can't act in vengeance because I don't know the whole story. I don't understand it. I, don't, I never will know it. But God does. The reason we leave vengeance, we leave punishment, we leave severe action up to the living God is because the living God knows every single aspect of that person's heart. He knows why they're the way they are. He really knows what they need. I don't know what they need. I think they need a whooping. I always think that. Because I'm a man and I'm simple-minded. But God knows what they really need. 
He knows exactly, precisely. He knows every button to push. Push. I don't know anything. Okay, so in, in, in the, the second point, stanza two, the Lord's response to our frustration and terror is to protect us. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. He, he protects us to encourage us and to answer our hearts when we cry out to Him in fear and sorrow. Protection, encouragement, answers. Hearing from our Heavenly Father. He does this because we've exchanged our pursuit of glory to striving for His glory. See, here's the, the heart and soul of that, of that relational salvation. Is that there's been an exchange of glory. Um, until the point in which I was born again, I cared only about the glory of Tony. And you did too. You cared only about your own glory. You cared about what you could get out of everything. You cared about your will and your way and your heart and your feelings and your anger and your everything. It was all about you. The moment in which I and you became slaves, enslaved to Christ Jesus through the gospel by the blood. When that happens, now all of a sudden we've exchanged a pursuit of our own glory for a pursuit of the glory of God. I can depend on my God to defend me, to encourage me, to protect me, to answer me because I have now committed myself to the glory of God. Not to my own arrogance, to my own frustration, to my own problems, but to God's glory. Radically different life. Take as example Paul's discussion of Abraham in Romans 4. And Romans 4, he talks about Abraham a lot. In the latter remarks, in Romans 4, 19-20, says this, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So in the face of this promise, remember he'd been made a promise, you're going to be a father. Hundred-year-old men do not become fathers by their 90-year-old wife. Wrap your brain around it a little bit. Simply does not happen, does it? It doesn't happen. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. We depend on the most outrageous promises of God, the most audacious guarantees that God gives us because we give glory to God. Because it becomes all about Him. I can depend on Him to encourage me, to protect me, to defend me, to give me answers when to Joseph, when I'm desperate for them. I can depend on that. Why? Because my pursuit is not my own satisfaction. It is the glory of God. Because if God can bless a 90-year-old woman with a baby by her 100-year-old husband, what can He do in the midst of my problems? Anything. Anything. Now, what He will not do is bless my pursuit of my own glory. But He'll bless my pursuit of His. As much as any person in the Scriptures, Abraham is defined as a man who believes and lived by the promises of God. After he's extremely advanced in age, God spoke to him and encouraged him in the face of, of two enemies over which men and women will never have earthly victory. Time and age. Nobody beats the calendar, do they? Nobody. 
Save the return of Jesus Christ. Not a single person in this room will, be, will, de- will defeat the calendar. It's appointed to every man wants to die and then the judgment. All of us. All of us have an appointment to keep. We are, there is no defeating. I mean, Christ defeats that enemy once and for all time. Infinitely defeats, makes a footstool of the enemy of death. I don't. I don't. Time and age. Yet despite the obvious limitations of the human body and lifespan, Abraham chose to believe God's promise without wavering. And through this grew even stronger in his faith at an old age because he gave glory to God. Listen, I cry aloud to God. He answers from his holy hill. Why? Because because my life, your life, our lives and faith are committed to the glory of God. There's a promise there. We depend upon that promise because we know when we give glory to God that God remembers. That God remembers. Three, in the Lord are peace and rest from the conflicts of this life. And freedom from fear. I lay down and, and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, this is such a simple thing to say. and It may make you laugh. I don't mean for it to. And that is, we all in this room understand what it's like when, what a dire situation you're in when because of troubles, sleep flees from you. I, I, we've all spent, I can't tell you how many days of my life I said, if I can just make it to bedtime, just make it to bedtime, Miss Diane, it'll all be better in the morning. And Glenda, bedtime doesn't come. Two o'clock in the morning, you're in the same shape you were in at, at nine o'clock that night. Or worse, you're in a lather. You're absolutely in a lather. I've been there. Lots of people in this room have been there where you wish you could just go to sleep. Just rest your eyes for a moment just to give that new perspective, right? And this wouldn't stop. It just kept rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. And you kept wringing your hands, pansy, like somehow you'd come up with the answer. You didn't come up with the answer, did you? No, you just got worse. You just got worse. David, pursued by his own son, I can't imagine the betrayal. He is both fearful of his son and fearful for his son, right? He knows the power of God. He's afraid for Absalom. I can't imagine the heaviness of that father's heart. There's no fear like that. None at all. No fear in this world like for your own child, right? No fear. God blessed David with sleep. The greatest blessing in the world. Peace. He offers this first peace. And Lord, our peace and rest from the conflicts of this life and freedom from fear. Now, the ultimate source of peace and freedom from fear is in our Lord Christ Jesus. The old, there's, it's not found anywhere. I mean, it's, there's respite in distraction. There's respite in a vacation. There's a respite in, in, a, in a deer stand, brother buddy. But it wears off, doesn't it? You can feel fantastic sitting in that deer stand, and, and, but when you come back, the real world's waiting for you at the edge of the woods. 
without surrender to Christ, we will always struggle with personalities and relationships with other broken humans. I think that's the place I want to, to touch on this in just a few more minutes, is that the idea that a lot of our problems that we're going to connect with this are, are just interpersonal issues with other people that are just as broken as we are. All right? Now, I, I think one of the things that, that should bring in our hearts is some mercy, right? As much as I have been had fits because of my relationship with others, I'm sure they had just as much of a fit. I was their problem as much as they were mine. Right? I was causing them as, many, as much sorrow as they were causing me. It wasn't that I was just the bully or they were just the bully. We were both, we were both the cause of each other's consternation. With Jesus, we can have what we seek and find nowhere else. Tranquility. What a great word. This ongoing peace. This, this durable peace. The thought is that while warfare rages around the Christian, they can dwell in peace, which is the byproduct of a, of a deep, informed, and abiding fellowship with Christ. What I mean is this, is that, Brother Rudy, my peace is dependent upon Him and not what's going on around me. In the midst of the greatest storm, I can have peace. Because as long as I am looking around and my peace depends on this situation or that or this thing over here, so many of us are like that, right? Our peace is circumstantial. If I can get the right job, I have peace. Or if, if my kid gets in the right school, I have peace. Or if, or if my mom is well, I'll have peace. And those are circumstances, right? It's not that they're unimportant, Dolores. They're very important things. But what if they don't work out? As I'm just going to be tore up the rest of my life? What we're looking for, the goal here, is that Ryan over there and Tony and Lucas and Roger can have a peace that is a tranquility that's based on a, a deep, durable relationship with Christ and not based on, on factors outside of Jesus. That if my peace is based on the unchanging Christ, then therefore my peace is what? It's unchanging. It's unchanging. Paul wrote Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For each person, the conflict that is most damaging to our prospect is that with the rightful King of all creation. Um, when we have peace with God, then all other conflicts are not secondary, but they are conflicts, and but they are His conflicts and His responsibility. It doesn't mean that if you're fighting with your wife that... Oh, well, Jesus is enough for me. My, my family's falling apart, but Jesus is enough. No, Jesus is always enough. But if your family's falling apart, you are torn to pieces. There's no doubt about that. What it means is this, is that because I now have, have eternal peace, infinite peace with the living God, it now means that my conflicts are His conflicts. So instead of me trying to fix my marriage, I now have Christ. Instead of me trying to fix my kids, I now have Christ. Instead of me trying to fix my, my work problem or my problems with my neighbor, I now have Christ. I now surrender every single problem to the person who's actually got the, the power to fix things. See, I don't have the power to fix anything. I'm weak and I'm stupid. And I'll do the wrong thing every single time without exception. Every time. 
He is perfect and infinitely powerful. And He assuages doubts and fears and fixes human hearts for a living. It's what God does. So why in the world would I want to fight my own battle so I can have Him do it? Let Him do it. Because He's the one. Once a Christian is at peace with God, then our harmony is found in, in, in Isaiah 26.3 where the prophet writes, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Now, that is a, the, the biggest mouthful in the world. Oh my goodness gracious alive. How hard is it to stay my mind on Christ? It's the hardest thing in the world. But here's the idea is this, is that the, the Scriptures tell us perfectly well, it is our goal and it is absolutely possible in the power of God to have a mind that's completely stayed on Jesus. Not, a, not the mind I've had my whole life but a mind that's focused on the one that is unchanging. The trust in Him. That my first instinct is to trust Jesus. Not enough money, I trust Jesus. Not enough time, I trust Jesus. Not enough peace, I trust Jesus. I always trust Jesus in everything. See, the problem we have is, listen to me, you know this is us, we tend to trust Him last. We've exhausted every other possibility and every other thing in the world, we trust Him. We cannot fix it ourselves. I guess I have to trust Jesus about this. Tell me we don't do that. When the bank won't lend me the money, I trust Jesus. When I have enough money to fix the car, I trust Jesus. If I had enough money to fix the car, what would I do? I'd fix the car. Trust Jesus later. We always do that. We always do that. We try to solve the problem. I'm not telling you don't go buy groceries. I'm not telling you don't go to the doctor. I'm not saying that. But what, well, I'm just going to, I went to address groceries. I'm not going to the grocery store this week. I'm trusting Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when you get down and you got $5 in the bank account and you've got no gas and $5 will not feed you all for a week, trust Jesus first. Before you call anybody else, before you do anything else, trust Jesus. But if we take any other steps, trust Jesus. Because we tend to trust Him when we have no choice but to trust Him. We trust Him secondary. So we've, we've already done the damage. Now just a little bit more. I'm sorry this is taking longer tonight than it usually does. I apologize. Believers in Christ are allowed, empowered, and encouraged to seek His help when we are confronted with interpersonal conflict and societal condemnation. Although some will argue that believers must embrace every attack as a lamb, the words of Solomon in Proverbs 25-26 tell us, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. What I'm saying is this, is that, and I, this has always been my philosophy, you know what, if you want to attack me, I feel I have to take it as Christ would. But leave Lucas alone. And leave Roger alone. And leave Joseph alone. Do you understand what I mean? I'm turning my cheek. I'm not turning their cheek. If you, if you attack my people, I will stand for my people. You can attack me all you want to. And I'll take it. You attack them, you're attacking my family. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the difference in this? I don't mean for... I'm not, this is not some me ticking my chest out. Not at all in that way at all. But what I believe is this, is that sometimes we look at ourselves so much as the lamb, we're not the lamb any longer. We've become a weakling. Christ is the lamb of God and He was never a weakling. Never a weakling. He waited in the temple as a man. And it's good and it's right to be a man of God. It's right to be a woman of God. It's right to be strong. As John Piper said, 
velvet steel. We're soft and we are tender and we're loving, but it does not mean that we lay down when truth is on our side. We do not. Always we are called to defend truth, to protect the weak and to preserve the innocent. And we will never apologize for that. Never should we confuse weakness or passivity with Christ-likeness because He was not passive and He was not weak. He was always proactive and He always did what was right. He never wavered. Even when they drove the nails, our Lord did not pull His hand back. However, if one command of this work is more important than the other instructions, it is that God's people ought to turn to Him in times of trouble and divisiveness, even if we are not totally blameless. It's another issue that I think we have to face very, very quickly. And that is the idea that, you know, sometimes we're going to have conflicts and I'm not, I'm not innocent. Sometimes we're going to have conflicts and we need God to come in amongst brothers and make peace, Mike. That we're both wrong. We're both being bullheaded. We're both wrong. It's how many times in our marriages did we need God to come in and make peace because we were both being spoiled brats? The ten, first ten years? At least... 15? At least? Longer? Do we need God to come in and make peace among two children? Children. I don't need to be bashful, Miss Kathy, when I know I'm wrong. I'm still seeking God's help when I know I'm wrong. Not to win. Not to vanquish my enemy. God, just make peace. God, I was wrong. I'm a, I think sometimes I'm bashful when I know I'm wrong. Russ? It's like I can't turn to my father because I did something wrong. No, the wonderful part about our Heavenly Father is, is that I can turn to Him. Even when I'm wrong. Powerless on our own, God is the power that the church wields. Our cries and our prayers to the righteous and just Father for Him to act on behalf of the downtrodden. The child's cry, save me, oh my God, is on our lips and in our hearts always in fellowship with Jesus. Now finally, the final point. Salvation is a vital resource that belongs to God alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. He writes, that is, that is desperately needed by all people and that is reserved for the chosen ones of God. The Bible tells us in Jonah 2, 1-2, it gives us a map here. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. The previous passage is a pattern which instructs each and every one of us in the process of crying out to a just Savior for mercy. How do we reach out to God? A couple things got to happen first. First, we must recognize the depth of our distress and our despair. I think, I can't tell you how many times over the years I have baptized people who wanted to save their marriage. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. I can't run from it. I baptize people who are really deep down now think they wanted they want their marriage back together and they thought if they got baptized that their marriage would come back together. They thought that. I have no I have no doubt that their marriage was a giant concern and a huge problem for them. No doubt at all. No doubt. They had deeper problems. Their issues went to the depth of their soul. 
If I go to God, Lucas, without realizing the depth of my problem, without realizing the depth, the stain of my sin, the, the cancer that my sin is on my life, to be honest with you, I'll never get the right answer. So, so the first, we must recognize the depth of our distress and our despair. Next, we must acknowledge that the lost soul dwells in the place of the dead. I.e. the lost are already dead in spirit and in reality. As Jonah said, I'm in Sheol. Jonah was in a, was in a fish. We know where he was. The Scriptures tell us. But Jonah doesn't say this. He says, no, what, know where I am? I'm dead. I realize the depth of my despair and I realize my reality. And that is, I am dead. I am dead on my own. I am without life. Spiritual life, eternal life, without it. The lost are already dead in spirit and reality. Then, when this is true, when our hearts are sufficiently chastened by the desperation of our condition, then we can cry out with a heart prepared to hear the gospel. I think those two things, according to Jonah, those two things absolutely have to be true. I've got to realize the desperation of my condition. I've got to realize that I am already dead and lifeless and without hope. Because the dead are without hope, right? I've got to realize that so that I can cry out. And actually hear what God says. Let's pray. Father God, I adore you. I thank you so much for this word and ask you please God to bless us now. I thank you God for blessing me to preach. I pray God that it was not too long. But I pray God that you blessed me to say everything I needed to say tonight. Bless us each and every one, Father God, as we, as we go through the rest of this week. Give us courage and energy, Father God, and strength to confront all that we have to confront. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you all so much.